it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show coming to you from the beautiful state of Wisconsin. I'm up in the North Woods for an event I spoke at. A dinner last evening, I actually posted some breathtaking photographs of where we are. They're on my story on Instagram, if you want to follow me, at Guy P. Benson. It's just an extraordinarily beautiful place. I mean, it just looks like a postcard. It looks perfect. It looks fake. And it's very cool to be here in a state, Wisconsin, that has some very important elections coming up seven weeks from Today, the midterms are seven weeks out. We'll be talking about Wisconsin and other states here in just a moment. But as we get going, let's bring you all of the traffic ahead. We remind you, as always, that our website is GuyBensonShow.com, that our podcast is available every day on demand, free of charge to you when the show is over. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, so 2 to 5 p.m. here in the Central Time Zone. When the show's over, Whole show becomes a podcast, free, on demand to all of you. It has grown in popularity. We're grateful for that. You can follow us also on social media if you would like, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. I mentioned my personal Instagram, at Guy P. Benson. You can follow me there or on Twitter, same handle. So lots of options there in the social media space. Listen to the lineup that we have on tap for you here today. And by the way, I do use on tap intentionally. Because, boy, they know how to drink in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, I think the folks were interested in my speech last night. I think that they laughed at some of my jokes. But I think the jokes maybe seemed a little funnier based on the happy hour that occurred right before the dinner. Uh, But it's an amazing lineup that we have in store. Starting this hour, about half an hour from now, Senator Rick Scott Republican Florida is the NRSC chairman trying to get a Republican majority elected in the United States Senate. And if he's going to be successful, this state where I am, Wisconsin, is going to be crucial in that. And also we'll be talking in a moment here about the state of Georgia, another extremely important state. And so if you're listening to me in Georgia on the podcast or, of course, listening live on our great affiliate down there, Extra, stay tuned here. We are opening with some Georgia talk moments from now. In the next hour... Our middle hour, Governor Glenn Youngkin, my governor from Virginia, he'll be joining us on the phone. uh, Looking forward to talking to him about his governance in the state and some of his involvement in the midterm election cycle, trying to help out some Republicans. We'll be talking about politics of the day with Governor Youngkin as well. And in our final hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, Chad Wolf will join us. Chad Wolf is the former acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. He will be reacting to and breaking down the brand new numbers that came out just last evening on the border crisis. The new August numbers, we've been waiting for them. We usually get them monthly around mid-month. Took a little longer than usual this month to get the August statistics, and they are bad. Another month of 200,000-plus apprehensions at the border. Those are just the encounters. 
203000 and change in the month of August, bringing the fiscal year total well past one, uh, 2 million, 2 million encounters just in the year. And awfully close to 1 million now known gotaways under President Biden. There were tens of thousands of known gotaways last month, as there have been every single month stretching back throughout this entire administration, throughout this entire crisis. It was yet another piece of very bad news that is a direct consequence of the failing, disastrous policies of the Biden administration. And Chad Wolf, who was at DHS for a period of time under Trump, he will be here to talk about all of it. There's one detail in particular that people are looking at and talking about today. Our colleague Bill Malugin was tweeting about it. Among the 203,000 immigrants, illegal immigrants that were caught at the border in August, not counting, of course, all those gotaways that I referenced, 12 of them were on the FBI terrorist watch list. 12 in one month. There have been dozens caught this year, blowing away all previous years. It's like you take the last five years combined, then you triple it. That's what we're seeing at the border this year. People coming in on the FBI's terror watch list, coming in from the southern border illegally. And, of course, it raises the question, if we caught 12 of them in the month of August alone, how many weren't caught? The people who typically try to evade capture... They don't want to be processed like so many illegal immigrants do. They want to be. They hand themselves in. Please process me and release me. That's why they're coming. Some more dangerous people do not want to get caught. And I would say it would make sense that disproportionately they're part of that gotaway population. Who aren't we catching among those tens of thousands every single month? Close to one million on this president's watch. So a lot to break down with Chad Wolf coming up. In our final hour. But as promised, as we begin today, I want to talk about the politics in Georgia. And then we'll probably get to a little bit of Wisconsin politics as well, since I'm here and since it's such an important state. A brand new poll out today from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the biggest newspaper in the state of Georgia. So it's the AJC and University of Georgia poll. And it has all the statewide races that they are polling And it's showing that Republicans have the lead in all of them. So, for example, down ballot, Brad Raffensperger, who is the secretary of state down there, got some controversy, the election in 2020, all the pressure and criticism from Donald Trump. He won the Republican nomination. He's now ahead by 19 points in this poll over his Democratic challenger, which is an extraordinary number in a purple state. In the governor's race, which we've been watching very closely, and we expect to have Governor Kemp back here on the show soon, listen to this. The, uh, the University of Georgia Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll has it at Kemp, the Republican incumbent, 50. Stacey Abrams, the Democrat, the challenger, 42. That's an eight-point lead for Governor Kemp, who squeaked by by a point and a half over Stacey Abrams in 2018. So this is a rematch. She never conceded the race. She thinks she's governor, basically. Uh, she continues to lie about that, by the way. And in the rematch, it does not appear to be going very well for her, as she's trailing by eight points. Then in the Senate race, and we talked about this yesterday with Adam Laxalt, 
who's the Republican nominee out in Nevada, a very important race, a very winnable race, I think, for the Republicans. If the GOP is going to get to 51 seats in the Senate, a majority, I think it's going to have to run through Nevada, and our guest yesterday, and Georgia. We had Herschel Walker, the Republican in that race, on the program last week. And Herschel Walker, here is yet another poll showing him slightly ahead over Raphael Warnock, who is the incumbent Democrat. This poll has it 46 to 44. So that's a two-point lead for Walker right now. Last time they put out a poll, which was in July, Walker was at 43 and Warnock was at 46. So this has been a five-point swing in favor of Walker, who now has a narrow lead in this contest. The other thing that I find interesting in this poll is you look at job approval numbers. Governor Kemp is at 56% approve, 39% disapprove. He's at plus 17. That's a very impressive number for Kemp. Warnock, who is slightly trailing in this poll, is barely above water but is above water. 47% approve, 46% disapprove. However, President Biden in Georgia has an approval rating at 37% with 58% disapproving. So Biden is underwater by 21 points. Kemp is above water by 17 points in that state. Warnock is above water by a point. So obviously, the task and the mission of the Walker campaign over these next seven weeks is to make sure and to at least try to push Warnock's approval ratings a little bit further down. It doesn't have to even be that much, just a little bit further towards Joe Biden's. If Warnock is tied to Biden, I don't think Warnock being 10 points better than Biden in approval will be enough to save him. If that gap closes, right, if if Warnock's approvals inch down towards Biden's, then he will be in very big trouble. I would also imagine that the Herschel Walker campaign is rooting on Brian Kemp as hard and as loudly as they possibly can. Because, yes, there are some ticket splitters that exist out there. Some people will say, okay, I'm voting for Kemp, but I want to vote for Warnock or whatever. They exist. But this day and age, if you're counting on a huge number of ticket splitters, often you're in some trouble. There are exceptions to that rule. You look at Susan Collins, for example, in Maine back in 2020. But if Brian Kemp runs up the score, if Kemp wins his reelection against Stacey Abrams, who I guess in her own mind is running for reelection because she thinks she got elected last time, even though she didn't, uh, and has been spreading disinformation about that and denying elections and threatening democracy for the last four years and becoming rich and famous because of it on her side of the aisle. But if Kemp wins by, let's say, somewhere in this ballpark, seven, eight, nine points, that might be enough to really help lift all boats and bring Herschel Walker over the top as well. So I think the strongest possible performance by Kemp is something that all Republicans in the state of Georgia should be rooting for. And, of course, that requires turning out and voting, which was part of the problem back in January of last year, part of the big mess that we've been in in Washington, D.C., is because the Democrats swept those two Senate seats in that runoff election because many thousands of Republicans decided to stay home. That cannot happen again in the state of Georgia. 
And based on this polling, Kemp is up comfortably, and Walker has a real shot of winning. He's virtually tied slightly ahead. And there's several polls now out recently that show that trajectory and that rough status quo, that snapshot of the Senate race in Georgia. Now, there's another poll out of the Peach State today as well. It's from Marist College. And this is interesting. It's got on the generic ballot, Republicans are up by seven. Joe Biden's job approval rating, very similar to the poll that I just mentioned. This is Marist versus the AJC poll. Biden's at 3956, so underwater by 17 points, a dreadful rating in Georgia. In the governor's race, Kemp is up huge. He's up 5342. He's up 11 in this poll over Stacey Abrams. While Raphael Warnock is slightly ahead in the Senate race by two points. So you've got two governor polls out of Georgia today. One has Kemp plus eight. One has Kemp plus 11. And on the Senate race, you've got one that has Herschel up to and one that has Warnock up to. It could be a real nail biter down to the wire in Georgia in that Senate race which is why I just went on that little mini diatribe about the importance of turning out and showing up. And we know that based on the reforms made in Georgia, the system will be even more reliable in this upcoming election. So that is the status right now in one of the most important states in the country. We talk about Georgia a lot because in some ways it's been like ground zero of American politics for the last three years. Absolutely huge, even actually going back to 2018 and the big controversy there and the election lies from Stacey Abrams. Then a big 2020 matchup, a very close presidential race there with two Senate races at the same time that bled into 2021. And we remember what happened with the Democrats winning both of those. And now here we are with these mega races at the top of the ticket in Georgia yet again. Right. These are blockbuster races which is why we're focused on this state as much as we are. I'll be actually down there next month at an event for our affiliate, Extra. Looking forward to that. Meanwhile, Stacey Abrams still out there getting asked about her trutherism, her election denialism. She's still trying to explain why she didn't concede the race in 2018. She said, my point was that the access to the election was flawed and I refused to concede a system that permits citizens to be not, uh, denied access. Uh, that just doesn't make any sense. And her accusations are false. She lost by 55,000 votes. She just didn't want to admit it. And she said over and over again that she won. And she's out there. She gave an interview on TMZ where she was suggesting that there's all this suppression happening. She's sticking with that lie. Right? She got her state boycotted. She got the MLB All-Star Game thrown out of her state. She's still lying about this stuff based on the Jim Crow fallacy, the absolute smear that she was spreading. And you would think maybe she might take a breather on the talking point after it was rebutted completely by reality in the primaries a few months ago, where every record wasn't just broken but shattered in terms of turnout on both sides of the aisle. There was no suppression at all. It was record-smashing turnout. And she's still sticking with this. Well, it seems like the leading light over at The View has a plan for the future of Stacey Abrams Cut 17. Listen to this idea. If Trump is not in prison, which, according to what I'm reading, is highly unlikely, uh, because Merrick Garland 
says nobody's above the law, mm -hmm. and let us hope that he means that, because mm -hmm. he has certainly committed crimes, mm -hmm. Trump, uh, Trump has, then I think you, um, Gavin Newsom has a chance. Gavin Newsom and Stacey Abrams, what a ticket that would be. Oh. Pretty good. Yeah, the big, big claps from the uh, audience there at The View. Newsom Abrams 2024. How about that? How does that show go down your spine? <laughs> well, we'll actually get back to Gavin Newsom a little bit later on today's program. There's a lot to get to, a great lineup. You don't want to miss any of it. It's The Guy Benson Show. We're just getting started. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. As I mentioned at the top, I'm in Wisconsin today. I was here yesterday as well for an event. Totally beautiful and also very critical for Republican Senate chances. This state coming up in November, Ron Johnson, the incumbent, seeking re-election against the Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who is a real radical. You know, abolish ICE, defund the police type guy. Reckless rhetoric fueling the race riots in the summer of 2020 and the burning of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I mean, he is way, way out there on the left. And now Ron Johnson is finally getting close to some sort of spending parity. And he is just playing the words and highlighting the beliefs of Mandela Barnes on the air here in Wisconsin. And it's having an impact. There have now been, I've seen, I think, three or four polls in a row that I've seen that has now Ron Johnson ahead. The Marquette poll which is seen as the gold standard poll in this state, although sometimes uh, they've had a few misfires here or there. But the Marquette poll has Ron Johnson up one point. I was told last night, very plugged in people at this event, it's the first time he's ever led, ever, in a Marquette poll. And it's a seven-point turnaround from the last numbers that they had. There's an Emerson poll out today that has him up four, Ron Johnson. I heard last night about some internal polling, has him up three to five points. There's an NRSC poll that has him up four. There's another public poll that had him up one. So, I mean, it is tight. It's always close in Wisconsin. It's often about a little bit of persuasion, but turnout, turnout, turnout. And Wisconsin, again, crucial. If Johnson can hold his seat, that makes retaking the Senate elsewhere a lot easier. If Johnson loses, I think the Democrats hold the Senate. But it's looking brighter as the light is shown on Mandela Barnes and his record here in the Badger State. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's our online home. Podcast is free every day. 
With us now is U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida. He's also the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Very important job this cycle, a very big election coming up seven weeks from today. Senator, good to have you back here. We're going to have a great November. Guy, we have got great candidates. Um, they're right on the issues. Uh, Joe Biden, the numbers are horrible. Um, we, um, you know, all of our Democrat opponents and all of our swing states are under 50 percent in fave unsafe. So we're just going to work hard every day and win. All right. So I want to walk through a number of these races with you. We had Adam Laxalt on the show yesterday. We had Herschel Walker on the show last week. We've got Blake Masters lined up uh, in a couple days. I think it might even be tomorrow. We've got some of these really important races covered here. We've had Senator Johnson. I'm actually doing the show from Wisconsin today. Uh, Those four races, Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Nevada seem to be kind of right smack in the middle of all of this. How are you feeling about each of those races and some of those dynamics based on what you're seeing, what you're hearing, maybe some of the internal numbers that you're seeing? I'm just curious. So let's take Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson is a hardworking senator. He's a great campaigner. He's running against a Marxist. Um, If you look at his races in 10 and 16, never had any polls. Uh, Just last week, uh, the Democrat-leading poll, Marquette, has him up one. In our internal polls, have um, Senator Johnson up four. So I think he's going to have a nice win. He's raising his money. Again, everybody, you know, help help all of our candidates, but he's running a great race. Herschel Walker, here's what's happened down there. Uh, Herschel, if you look at the public polls, Herschel's up three. Uh, here's why. Herschel is a good guy. People like him. He cares about people. He listens. Raphael Warnick is a Marxist, and he is lying about his record. He ran as a middle-of-the-road guy back in 2020. Uh, he had a nice ad with a little dog that he actually doesn't even own. Uh, he, we, so what we've done is we've defined him. And how have we defined him? We've shown that he's not a middle-of-the-road guy. He's Chuck Schumer lookalike. He votes whatever Chuck Schumer tells him how to vote. We've taken his favorable numbers, not because we don't like the guy, but we should show how he's voted down 28 points uh, since the election in 2020. So we've defined him early. Herschel's run a good race. He's going to win. Brian Kemp uh, is our is the Republican governor, and he's running a great race. And those two together are both going to win uh, in November. Okay. I mean, I think that certainly Johnson and Walker have some momentum in those Senate races. Uh, Laxalt seems to be a very strong candidate in Nevada. His opponent is uh, really struggling to gain any sort of traction at all out there. But it's always a close state. I know Republicans have done a lot of hard work in terms of closing the registration gap, but it's still, you know, relatively blue place. But talking to him yesterday, I mean, he sounded pretty bullish about it. I would imagine you probably agree. Adam Laxalt is going to win, and here's why. Adam is a good candidate. Um, He served in Iraq, two-term state attorney general, very successful at that. He's he's running against a person that most people in Nevada don't have any perception about. We've been defining his Democrat opponent uh, since last year. 
Um, as you also know that we we have been the, the Hispanic vote has been moved in our direction. I've won the Hispanic vote in my two governor's races and my Senate race. Hispanics are with us because they don't like what Joe Biden and the Democrats are doing. It's got it's over 20 percent of the vote is Hispanic. I think Adam Laxalt is going to do really well with Hispanic voters, and that's going to be the game changer. If you look at the polls, he's flat to up a little bit, uh, and he's running a good race. Uh, the Democrat isn't, and that's why we're going to win there. What about Arizona? I know people are saying it could be winnable. Uh, Blake Masters has not led in any of the polling that I've seen yet. Mark Kelly's the incumbent. Uh, he's just, you know, a, a Biden-Schumer rubber stamp, but he's got a huge amount of money. He's been spending a ton of it. They're attacking Blake Masters. He's a first-time candidate uh, for office of any sort. So, you know, it seems like maybe a little bit more of an uphill battle out in Arizona, but with the, the right type of turnout and, you know, if, if it's a red sort of evening, it seems like that one could be within grasp. Is that one that you would say, you know, is, is winnable still? Absolutely. We're investing in each of these states. Um, first off, Blake is a successful tech entrepreneur. Uh, it is, it's going to be a Republican year. Uh, Mark Kelly ran in, in uh, 2020 as a moderate. Um, he's voted against border security, not very popular there. He's voted to give stimulus checks uh, to, to felons, not popular in Arizona. Um, if you look at Mark Kelly, we've defined him by talking about, like we did with Warning, hey, here's how this guy's voting. He's not, he's not a middle-of-the-road guy. He is Chuck Schumer running for office in Arizona. So we've explained who he is. He's, he's, uh, he's way under 50 percent on his fav, favorable, unfavorable ratings. So as people get to know Blake Master, they're moving to him. The race has tightened up. Blake will win because, one, uh, he's, he's a great candidate. Two, Joe Biden's underwater. Three, um, Mark Kelly's underwater. Four, we're going to win his bank vote. The National Republican Central Committee, we put – we put significant efforts into the Hispanic vote in nine swing states, and it's paying off. We're registering uh, uh, Hispanics uh, as Republicans. We're talking to them. They're going to vote our way, and that's going to be the game changer to make sure we win in these states. And, and by the way, if you look at any of the polling, um, uh, the Mark Kelly loses to a Republican. So as we define and explain who, who Blake Master is, uh, he will eventually uh, start being head in the polls. Okay, uh, we'll be watching that obviously closely. Another big race. This would be a Republican hold if they can hang on to it, if you guys can. That is Pennsylvania. And for a while there, it was looking pretty scary, right? The polling was not great. Uh, to put it mildly, John Fetterman was way ahead and Dr. Oz was really struggling. It seems like Oz is starting to find his footing a little bit. He certainly has some momentum in that race. We talked to one of our uh, friends and analysts, Josh Krasauer, a really smart political reporter. He was on the ground. He said you can feel the race shifting a little bit. Uh, Oz is still behind Fetterman. But Fetterman, you know, really doesn't want to debate. Uh, he's got a, a very extreme record for a state like Pennsylvania. And Oz, while at least from what I'm seeing, is still trailing, the trajectory at least is, is looking significantly improved over where it was, let's say, a month ago. What's your read on that race? Well, when people get to know Memon Oz, a world-renowned physician, the top healthcare talk show host in the world, Versus a guy that you would would not, if you make money, you know, you don't want your kids to turn around out like Fetterman. Fetterman has never really worked his entire life. He wants to release a third of all the criminals in prison, and he wants to legalize all drugs. That's not where Pennsylvanians are. So Memon has raised quite a bit of money. There's been a lot of outside resources that know how good a senator uh, Memon Oz will be. 
he's in there. We're defining, you know, we at the NRC, we're defining uh, Fetterman. We're helping Oz. If you look at it, the polls have tightened. Um, if you look at the latest polls, I think Oz uh, is down two. If you look at what's going to happen as people get to know who Fetterman is, they're, you know, Member Oz is going to win. He's continued every week getting better and better uh, position. Uh, so all we have to do is make sure uh, Mehmet and people know who he is and people know who uh, Fetterman is, we'll win. You have to remember, uh, Mehmet Oz went through a very tough primary, had, I think, $50 million of attack ads against him. So he's had, he's had to show people who he really is, and it's, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay off for a win in, in November, which is an important win because we've got to keep Pennsylvania. We also have to keep North Carolina where we're already leading in the polls. Yeah, and and Wisconsin, like those are three must hold seats, or at least two of the three. I'd say would say must hold. Got to pick off a couple Democratic incumbents or Democrat held seats at the moment, uh, and there's a, a real chance that can happen. Uh, and the polling overall seems to be moving and drifting back in a better direction after kind of a, a tough summer. And you know. Inflation, obviously, a huge issue. Crime, really emerging in some of these races. You just mentioned Pennsylvania. Crime, a big, big story there because of Fetterman's crazy positions, you know, releasing criminals out of prison, uh, including murderers. I mean, it's it's way, way out there. Left-wing stuff, very similar here in Wisconsin, doing the show from Wisconsin today, Mandela Barnes running against Ron Johnson is a real radical. Um, so you've got in some of these states just Biden rubber stamps in states where Biden is unpopular. And then some of the other races, you've got, you know, really left lefty fringe type candidates in what ought to be at least a red tinted year. So I can understand the case uh, for some optimism here. I think people would feel better if the polling were to look better and maybe it will improve in the coming weeks. We've also talked about polling misses in recent cycles. You know about that down in Florida. Uh, you went through that yourself, 2018. You were not supposed to be a senator based on the polling, and, and yet here you are as a U.S. senator, NRSC chairman. In that capacity, Senator, I want to ask you about this, and I know there's been a lot of chatter about it in the media and some on social media and discussions among Republicans publicly and privately that there is some sort of schism between you and Senator McConnell. I know McConnell and his pack has spent they're spending huge resources to help some of these candidates. You guys are trying to march in the same direction in terms of getting Republicans uh, into the majority, back into the majority in the U.S. Senate. Some you know differences along the way. Uh, you know apparently you know a, a couple maybe you know squabbles or, or um, differences of opinion. I'm just wondering in this crucial final seven week stretch, are, are you guys has that stuff sort of been? Um, dealt with? Is that behind some of that drama? Is that behind you guys? Or are you still trying to work through some of those issues? Or were they overblown to begin with? Well, I mean, I don't know why people thought there was a schism. We both have the exact same goal. We both um, want to make sure we win. I know we have great candidates. And what we did is we invested at the NRC. We invested early. And think about where we are right now. We're going to get 52-plus seats. We're after Labor Day. We're, what, a week after Labor Day or so, and we're, where are we? We're now in position that we can we could win. We have six, at least six competitive pickups, six competitive pickups against Democrats right now. Joe Day's barely behind in, in Colorado. Tiffany Smiley against Patty Murray, who's been there for 36 years, barely, barely, barely behind there. So if you look, New Hampshire, um, Maggie Hassan, she is, they've spent tens of millions of dollars up there, and she, her approval rating is still in the low 40s. So if you look at this, we just got our candidate last week, great guy, Don Bolduc. So if you look at this, we have, I believe we're at 52 plus. We've got 
52, I'm, I'm very comfortable we're going to win, but I think we've got 53, 54, 55, 56. I was in, I was in Connecticut, and the governor there is barely behind uh, in the governor's race, which is going to help Leora Levy, who's a great candidate in the state of Connecticut. So, And by the way, in all these states, Biden's numbers is under 40, and the, and the Democrat candidate is under 50. So it shows you that we have an unbelievable opportunity to take the majority and have a nice majority. Let's talk about inflation. I wonder what you were thinking as you watched. We were sitting here on the air, watching it on our TV screen while we were live on the air. What was it, just last week, where you had that horrible inflation report come out uh, from the last month where the numbers were worse than expected and and very worrisome, especially in some of those, like, you know, internal numbers about uh, how things are not improving and getting worse in some key ways in this pain that's being visited on the American people month after month after month on inflation when we were told there would be no inflation because of these policies and then it would be transitory. And now we're, you know, we're stuck in this chronically high inflationary period, 40-year highs. And on the day that that bad report comes out, they have a big celebration at the White House about their bill that they call the Inflation Reduction Act that had been implemented a month prior and they had people all there, you know, cheering and they're high-fiving and congratulating each other. James Taylor is singing. And you sort of look at the juxtaposition of what the reality is and how the White House is trying to, you know, talk about it or spin it. I just wonder what impact that had on you. And to me, it seemed like an obvious political opportunity for Republicans due to the extreme out-of-touch nature of that spectacle at the White House. Guy, it's real personal to me. I grew up in a poor family. I lived in public housing, born to a single mom. I watched my mom struggle to put food on the table and put gas in the car. That's going on all across the country. It's all across my state. People are going to food banks that have never been to a food bank. I got people delaying their retirement or coming out of retirement. Here's what you'll find interesting. On top of inflation being bad, you know how Biden administration is bragging about the job growth? In the month of August alone, full-time jobs fell, didn't grow fell by 242,000. People aren't talking about that. Self-employment numbers are down. People have to take part-time jobs, not full-time jobs. The number of hours worked is dropping. Labor participation is dropping. So this is all as a result of the Biden administration, the Democrats controlling the House, the White House, and the Senate. So I think about families, how much it impacts families like my mom that struggled for put food on the table. Um, so I, this is it makes me mad that the, the, the Democrats and Joe Biden are out in the left field to celebrate on the day. And by the way, guys, you know when you're the president when because I knew when CPI numbers are going are going to come out, and you probably knew the numbers ahead of time. And so the so eight point three percent. CPI, but just think about how much food prices are up, heating oils up. Uh, so it's really impacting the poorest families in this country. Gas is still up significantly from when Biden got elected, and he's still doing everything he can to restrict production of oil and gas, which makes no sense to me. Yeah, and then you look at rent, you look at, I mean, almost everything, and food being such a huge one, people feel it every single day. NRSC chairman and U.S. senator. Rick Scott from Florida is our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, we'll probably check in before the election, maybe one more time. But, man, seven weeks away, it's really crunch time here, uh, and we're looking forward to having you back. All right. We're going to win. See you, Guy. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Rick Scott, very bullish, very optimistic here as he looks ahead. 52 seats at least, he said. We'll see. It's The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. 
Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. So we spent some time in the open yesterday on the program reacting to and breaking down some of the things that President Biden said in his 60 Minutes interview on Sunday, his first TV interview since February. And one of the things that he said was that the pandemic is over. And I agreed with him on that. The pandemic has been over for a while. It's not to say COVID is completely over, but the pandemic, the emergency is over. And for him to say that, I think, is useful, but also quite annoying because they're still using emergency powers related to the pandemic to do things that are legal but questionable. And then other things that I think are illegal, like the student loan cancellation scheme. But it's interesting now, some Democrats and others in the media are contradicting Biden and saying, no, the pandemic isn't over. Don't say that. There's a piece in the Washington Post about that. There's an ABC News story about some Democrats contradicting Biden when they're asked about what Biden said. He said the pandemic's over. Tim Kaine, Democrat of Virginia, saying, no, it's not. This is not over. Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, He's like, look, the variants are still they're still out there. Um, you know, it's it's not over. And he sort of joked about Biden. Maybe he knows something I don't. And part of this is because they want to keep spending money. They want more pandemic relief. So it's not helpful for Biden to say that it's over. Although he did say that, even though the White House is pretending that he didn't. Here's KJP earlier. Cut 23. The president said, and he was very clear in his 60 Minutes interview, that, uh, you know, COVID remains a problem and we're fighting it. And we have to continue uh, to make sure that we are fighting uh, this once uh, in a generation pandemic. But he said the pandemic's over. Oh, he was very clear in his 60 Minutes interview. He said that COVID isn't gone, but he said the pandemic is over, which is correct. But watch them sort of backpedaling, I think, for political reasons. So... They got to get that back on the same page that they possibly can. And again, this is maybe why they don't do a lot of interviews over there at the White House with the president. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our middle hour of three. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. If you can't listen as we air, you can get our podcast free of charge. That's every day. It's on demand, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show, that's Twitter and Instagram, our handle on both platforms. If you want to follow us for extra content, Uh, That's up to you, but we do recommend it at Guy Benson Show. Coming up minutes from now, Governor Glenn Youngkin will be joining us live from Virginia. Looking forward to that conversation. Before we get to that, though, I want to talk about something that happened or allegedly happened at BYU, Brigham Young University. At this point, a couple weeks ago, I believe, there was a volleyball match between BYU and Duke women's teams. And one of the African-American women on the Duke team alleged that she was targeted with racist abuse from the fans, or at least one fan who was using slurs and that kind of thing. And it created a big, big outcry. 
where BYU was very apologetic. The athletic director addressed fans. They took it extremely seriously. And even if it was just one person doing this kind of thing, it's totally unacceptable. That was the allegation. And Duke, of course, stood behind their athletes, their team, the people who were making the accusation. And it got a bunch of national attention. Everyone ran with it. Racist incident at BYU. Well, the administration at the university promised a thorough investigation. There was someone who was specifically accused of having done this, and they suspended him and sort of like banned him from games. Then they undertook their investigation, where they reviewed all of the video and audio available from the match. And there were lots of cameras rolling. There was lots of evidence to review. They also interviewed dozens of people who were there in and around the student section and that area. Dozens of interviews. And then, after their probe was concluded, they announced publicly that they had found no evidence that this had happened at all. Not a single person, aside from the accuser, not a single person said that they heard anything like that. And there was no evidence recorded of anyone saying anything anything like that, or anything of this nature happening. Now, I don't know if this player is lying and fomenting a hoax. I don't know if maybe she misheard something, but there's no evidence that this happened. And a lot of the people who covered what happened, as if it was true, weren't so eager to cover the follow-up and the actual evidence or lack thereof, which I think is not very ethical. But because BYU at this point... They were sort of smeared, it seems, in the process. Listen to how some fans at the University of Oregon this past weekend were chanting. Listen to what they were saying toward the BYU fans and toward the team from the stands. This is out in Oregon. Ducks fans. Ugly stuff from the student section there. Cut 21. The Mormons. The Mormons. Bleep the Mormons over and over again likely tied to the Duke allegation, which seems to be perhaps baseless or certainly unsubstantiated. So you've got an ugly accusation of bigotry that is not supported by any available evidence after a thorough investigation. And then the response to that from fans of another school is to direct explicit bigotry at BYU, religious bigotry, out in the open, on camera, plenty of evidence there. The University of Oregon has apologized for this, as they should, but I just think it's very interesting to see the huge pile on a single allegation. Duke is still standing by it with no evidence to back it up, and then here is undeniable bigotry on camera directed at the school that was accused initially, and there's been a very muted response, no big national news story about that. I think, unfortunately, this whole episode speaks to a lot of our problems that we have right now in our society. The incentives in the media, what people rush to judgment to believe because they assume certain things to be true. I'm not saying that all accusations like this are hoaxes, but a lot of them turn out to be either hoaxes or misunderstandings where the underlying, seemingly disturbing thing didn't actually happen. And then there are other types of bigotry that are accepted or just sort of ignored. Like we should have a blanket rule basically on bigotry. It's wrong, it's evil, it's morally bad. And wherever it exists, we should call it out. It cannot be selective this way. 
And I think that's why so many people are angry and cynical a lot of the time when it comes to these types of issues. And this is just another example in a long line of them that I wanted to bring to your attention. With that, let's break earlier than we usually do in this segment, but it's for a good reason. We have Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia on deck. He will join us live as soon as we come back from this short break on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for being here. Very pleased to welcome back to the program Glenn Youngkin, the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. He is my governor. You can find him on Twitter at Governor VA. And, Governor, good to have you here. Guy, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. And we've been busy in Virginia. and We've had a great uh, first uh, eight months with with budget proposals that cut taxes and invest in school and invest in in police uh, and, oh, by the way, making government work better. So I am very pleased with the progress we've made, and I always enjoy being with you to talk about it. We appreciate having you here, and it seems like the people of Virginia, by and large, appreciate what you've been doing thus far. Your approval ratings are pretty solid for a conservative Republican in a purplish-blue state. You know, you, you barely won that election. You flipped a state, at least on the governor's side, that President Biden had carried by 10 points just a year prior. And here you are. I've seen polls that have you in the low to mid or even high 50s in job approval. How are you sustaining those kinds of you know, above water numbers with an electorate that may not be overly inclined to be terribly hospitable to Republicans all the time? I think at the core is we're getting a lot done. And, you know, remember, we, while we did flip our House, the Senate wasn't up last year. And so I have a Democrat-controlled Senate and a Republican-controlled House. And, yes, uh, we won the lieutenant governor and attorney general's uh, races last year as well. Um, but we've had to work across the aisle, and we've delivered. Uh, we've cut taxes by $4 billion, which is the largest tax cut by a factor of four in the, ever in the history of Virginia. Um, we've delivered a record education budget that uh, funds teacher raises and invests in building new schools and, oh, by the way, launches lab schools and a tax scholarship system for for choice within the public school system. So it's very exciting to see real movement on education. And then, of course, on law enforcement, uh, we're going to work to keep our communities safe. Uh, 20% raises for law enforcement, investment in, in training and equipment. And I think Virginians appreciate that. Listen, these are common sense solutions to kitchen table issues that People are facing every day. Listen, inflation is running away from Virginia families, and they're having to work hard to make ends meet. They're having to economize. And when they see a a governor going to work to try to keep more money in their pocket, I think they appreciate it. I mean, we even worked with all of our public universities to keep tuition flat this year for uh, for Virginia kids and schools. And and again, I think I think that families just appreciate the fact that uh, the governor is working hard on their behalf. I mean, that's a big deal right there because everything is going up, 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 and the cost of college and university seems to outpace inflation, has for many years, and, you know, the the sticker shock is absolutely real. So to keep it flat even year over year for one year is just a tiny bit of relief for some of these families uh, in Virginia. And I also just want to point out on some of the stuff that you were just rattling off the list, none of this was a bait and switch, right? This is stuff that you campaigned on. And now you're delivering on these things, and I think that's probably also part of it. People maybe aren't always accustomed to politicians saying, hey, I'm going to do these things, and then they come in and start doing precisely those things. I think that's probably one of the explanatory factors here as well. 
Something that has gotten some attention, Governor, is your new policy, your administration uh, that you've released on uh, public schools and transgender students in those schools. It's a change in policy. I'm wondering what precipitated the change and what was your objective in making this shift? Because it's getting some attention because people say, oh, here's a this is a culture war thing. How did you approach this? Well, let me back up, Guy, just on, on the uh, – and, and this is, these are draft guidelines. Uh, they'll be open for a 30-day comment period, uh, and then they'll move into final guidelines as school divisions adopt them. Um, but but the, the, the key point here is, first, to, to respect and honor the dignity, the privacy, and the safety of all children. Uh, and then, second of all, to recognize that parents – matter in all children's lives. And, and when there's a child that is working through a, a challenging moment or, or a very, very important decision in their life, parents should be deeply engaged in that. And, and unfortunately, uh, my predecessor's uh, policies, in fact, suggested that parents shouldn't be involved in that. And I just think that's wrong. And, and uh, a child deserves to have a parent involved in their lives and not not to the full exclusion of a caring teacher or counselor or administrator, but parents have to be first. And and I just find it to, to be a very important moment to remind folks that that children don't belong to the state. They belong to families. And here's our here's our moment to reiterate that uh, responsibility to parents and that obligation for teachers and administrators to involve parents in these decisions. That's what the, that's what the model policies are all about. And I think this is so consistent with with uh, what we ran on, which is parents matter. And when we had a chance to, to pass bipartisan legislation that empowered parents to make decisions with regards to masking, uh, to make decisions with regards to explicit materials in the classroom, and now to make make sure that they are fully involved and engaged in important decisions that are going on in their child's life. I just think this is all about making sure that kids have parents involved in their lives. Governor, one of the biggest issues in your campaign, and I think it may be safe to say perhaps the issue that put you over the top in that campaign. Of course, there's always a a whole slew of issues, uh, and it's hard to pinpoint one, but I I doubt you would disagree that education was front and center down the home stretch of your campaign in 2021. And I'm noticing as I look around the country right now, and we're seven weeks out from a very important election uh, all over the country, these midterms, Republicans are focused on the economy and inflation, for obvious reasons, you mentioned that, on crime, especially in some of these really crucial races. Uh, you know, you're seeing you know, immigration and, and the controversy there. These are very big issues, no doubt, and I think it would be malpractice for Republicans to be ignoring them and not leaning into them. But I'm also sort of getting the sense that parents' rights and education and some of the failures – that were inflicted and and harms inflicted on children in particular during the pandemic as it relates to education, that was right at, you know, a burning issue top of mind in your campaign, in your stump speech, uh, in those final, you know, months and weeks of the campaign, uh, the indoctrination of kids in some schools and things that we've seen there. It was extremely resonant for the Virginia electorate, and you won. I'm not really seeing quite as much emphasis being placed around those issues 
by Republican candidates in a lot of these important races. And I just wonder, do you think that's a mistake? I, I keep saying this is the first national election since COVID, since all of this stuff was done to kids in schools. And it, there needs to be some accountability and something of a, of a, ref, a referendum, excuse me. Uh, and this is an opportunity to do it. It just kind of almost feels like it's slipping into maybe a second tier issue for the party. And I wonder what you think of that, if you agree with that, and what your advice is to some of these Republicans running around the country, maybe sometimes in tough districts or states that look to you and what you did in Virginia, and they're hoping to replicate it. What what would you tell them? What are you telling them? Guy, I, I 100% agree with your assessment of the importance of this issue. And in fact, uh, when school's out in the summertime, education tends to fall down the list in, in, uh, in people's minds. And now that all students across the country are back in school. You're seeing education come back to the forefront as a primary concern as voters uh, consider different candidates. And, of course, last year in Virginia, you're 100 percent right. Um, at the end of the day, the idea that parents shouldn't be involved in, in their child's education uh, as, a, as a real platform statement from the progressive left uh, was rejected wholeheartedly not just by Republicans, but by independents and by a lot of Democrats. And uh, we, we won the Latino vote. We won the Asian vote. We had more votes from the black community than any Republican in recent history. We won places that Republicans haven't won. And we had the largest percentage of votes in our traditional red counties. And so education is at the core. And as candidates uh, uh, meet with voters and listen to voters and campaign running into November the 8th, um, I strongly encourage them to include education as one of their top issues. And it's about parents, empowering parents, having high standards in schools, not watered down expectations. It's about investing in in choice and making sure that parents can fully engage. And by the way, this is one of the kitchen table issues that the Republican common sense platform is the winning platform. The, The progressive left liberals want to inject Uh, bureaucrats and politicians between parents and their children. They think they know better for what's best for your family. And we've we've seen transparency in what happened with during COVID and curriculum. And by the way, parents stood up and said, not in Virginia. And I'm seeing the exact same reaction around the country, not in Michigan, not in Nevada, not not in not in Georgia, not in Nebraska, and not in other states like New Mexico and Oregon and other places. So I do believe that we're going to see education, again, surge to the forefront as we get close to November the 8th. And candidates should absolutely lean in on the Republican values because they're yep. the winning, winning formula. No, I, I totally agree with you. And I hope that message is being heard by Republican candidates and candidates that you're out there talking to, helping, supporting. One of whom I do want to ask you about. I saw a headline that you're going to be doing some events on behalf of Carrie Lake out in Arizona. She's the nominee for governor in that state. And she said some things, as you know, very controversial. She's denied that Joe Biden was, uh, you know, elected in a free and fair election. She's been talking about that election in 2020 being stolen uh, a lot of the time. And it's really centered some of her primary campaign around that message. Uh, You have said and you did say on the campaign trail that Joe Biden was uh, elected legitimately. She obviously is on the other end of that. Uh, Is that something that you're comfortable with? And and what's your line when you decide what kind of candidates you're willing to support and go and help? Well, if we back up and we see what's happened in Arizona under uh, Doug Ducey's leadership, Governor Ducey has done a tremendous job on cutting taxes 
and establishing choice in schools and empowering families. And Arizona, Arizona deserves to have a Republican governor and to continue these most important policies. And of course, what we've seen around the country is states led by Republican governors have outperformed coming out of the pandemic, states led by, by Democrat governors. And it's just that clear. And so we've been working to support Republican candidates across the country. And I think Arizona, Arizona citizens deserve another Republican governor. Um, I've seen in, in the states that I've had the good fortune to visit um, that people are tired of the Democrat-led governor, or Democrat-led states. They're tired of, of rising taxes. They're tired of slow recovery out of the pandemic. They're tired of schools lowering expectations, and they expect better. And uh, I think states deserve yeah, so Republican it comes down so I'm going to, to those work. issues. Yeah, th- those contrasts. I-, I hear you. I hate to cut you off, Governor, but we are up on a hard break, so I've got to take it. That is the governor of Virginia, my governor, Glenn Youngkin, a Republican. Governor, always great to talk to you. Thank you. I deeply appreciate you. Have a great day. Absolutely. We'll talk again soon, and we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show next. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We continue on The Guy Benson Show. Glad you're here. Thank you very much for listening every day. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. So back to the story about Martha's Vineyard and the illegal migrants and this huge political battle and the war of words that continues to play out. There was a soundbite that I meant to get to yesterday. We're going to play it for you in just a second. But these allegations that what the governors of Texas and Arizona and Florida have been doing is somehow illegal. The White House referred to it as human smuggling, referred to these governors as smugglers. Other people calling it human trafficking. The clownish governor of California, Gavin Newsom, even suggesting that this could be illegal kidnapping that DeSantis is guilty of in the Martha's Vineyard element of this whole firestorm in particular, which is just totally unserious. Just a man who wants to be president, trying to get attention. He loves to show that he's fighting to own the cons. Right? That's his brand of governance in California, owning the cons. He's putting up billboards in other states, advertising abortions in his state. Isn't that lovely? Well, they can't keep the lights on in California in some places. And they've got all sorts of problems with crime that we've talked about. And it's like, you know, heal thyself, deal with your own state problems first. But he wants apparently a promotion to president. That's Gavin Newsom. So he's throwing out, you know, talk about a political stunt this suggestion that DeSantis might be guilty of kidnapping. Well, senior Florida officials held a conference call and a reporter call with journalists yesterday, Bill Malugin reporting that on that call, the officials said all of the migrants that were flown to Martha's Vineyard were sleeping on the street in Texas because they had run out of space to accommodate these people. These border communities are totally overrun and overwhelmed. And all these blue state officials, these Democrats, they don't care at all about that. They don't even talk about it. But all of a sudden, these homeless illegal immigrants all over the place in Texas, a few of them get sent to this lovely enclave of rich liberals, and it becomes a human rights disaster and a cruel indictment of DeSantis or something. I'm looking forward to getting the reaction to all of this, by the way, next hour from Chad Wolf former acting DHS secretary. He will be here on the show. So on this call, the Florida official said all of the migrants that were flown to Martha's Vineyard were sleeping on the streets down at the border in Texas, and they went voluntarily. 
They were given hotels, showers, etc. beforehand. They said some migrants chose to stay behind, so they were given the option to fly to Martha's Vineyard. The ones who went agreed. Others didn't want to go, so they were not kidnapped. They were not trafficked. They were left to remain in the overwhelmed border towns down in Texas. So I think the utter silliness that there was something illegal done by the Republican governors here is disintegrating. Not that many people took it seriously in the first place. Even MSNBC, and this is the clip that I meant to play yesterday, had to admit on the air they had one of their correspondents down there talking about how you had the migrants in Martha's Vineyard not angry at Ron DeSantis. In fact, they were thanking him. Cut 11. There's activists here, Jose, that are saying that these people were victims of human trafficking. They want an investigation from the Justice Department onto what Governor DeSantis is doing, what Governor Greg Abbott is doing, because they're saying that these people are being abused and used uh, to bring a border crisis deeper into the country. Now, I can tell you they are not angry at uh, Ron DeSantis. They are actually thanking him for having brought them to Martha's Vineyard, where they were, they were very well received. But other people, well, they're saying they're being used as political pawns. They don't resent it for now, uh, and they know they're the lucky ones. <laughs> exactly. The idea that this was inhumane, unimaginable cruelty for Ron DeSantis to give these migrants hotel rooms, showers, and then a free flight to one of the nicest tourist destinations in the country that most people can't afford to go to, and, like, Ron DeSantis is the awful bad guy here? It's crazy. It was always crazy. But they reacted volcanically to all of this because that's all they know how to do. And I think they realized that the border crisis is a big political problem for them, so their instinct is just to lash out and attack. And Ron DeSantis is one of their favorite people to attack, so they did it. But, again, it's blowing up in their faces, which I think is one of the superpowers of Ron DeSantis. He gets his opponents to say and do stupid, ridiculous things all the time, and he's able to anticipate what they're going to do, and he's ready. He's, like, ahead of the game with the next step. Like, he's not out there playing checkers. Oftentimes, he's thought this stuff through pretty carefully. And so he's responded even further to this. I'll play some of that sound here in just a second. But I am still just enjoying so much that clip that we played. That's MSNBC viewers being told by a correspondent that the migrants are not angry at DeSantis. They don't resent it at all. They are thankful and grateful that they were the lucky ones to get sent to Martha's Vineyard. And she did say, well, they were treated very well and they were, you know, welcomed here and people were hospitable. That is true. For, what was it, 44 hours? 36 to 44 hours? And then they were, as DeSantis puts it, deported off of the island, and there's a bunch of people now parsing that. This is not technically a deportation. That is inaccurate for the governor to say. He's making a point again, and you're falling for it again. It is functionally deportation, right? People who are illegal immigrants show up in a jurisdiction in order to virtue signal. Literally, the people of Martha's Vineyard mobilize to show and showcase their virtue. Look how good we are. Unlike... The governor of Florida, the governor of Texas, we are just welcoming wonderful people. And look, here's a cot. We'll set this up in our home, and here's a hot meal. And, oh, it's great to meet you. What's your name? Here's a big hug for the cameras. We're so glad to have you. We read the story yesterday. They've enriched us. They've enriched us so much 
And they said there was an indelible mark left by these migrants on Martha's Vineyard. It'll be there forever. Their memory shall last forever and ever. But then, after less than two days, they're like, okay, yeah, thank you for the indelible mark. Thank you so much for the enrichment. Uh, slumber party's over. Um, let's pack up the food here. You can take a little bit with you, but it's time to go. And in came the military, put them on buses, and then presumably on a boat or some sort of aircraft, and off the island they went, sort of like a deportation. And they were no longer the people of Martha's Vineyard's problem to deal with anymore. Right? That's how it went. That was the timeline here. So DeSantis, who I think is very much welcoming this controversy, he did this deliberately to create the controversy, following in the footsteps of Governor Abbott, who I think was the original, you know, this was his brainchild at first. And as I've said before, I agree it's a stunt, but the stunt was done for a reason, to draw attention to a problem that people were studiously ignoring on purpose for political reasons. So with their backs up against the wall... In desperation mode, month after month after month, these Republican governors, especially at the border, got creative. Said, okay, here's another way that we're going to try to force this conversation onto people who don't want to have it. And in that respect, they have been extremely effective and successful. And by doing what DeSantis did, picking that particular destination, obviously it was done to invite controversy, and he's been ready for it. So he joined Hannity last night to talk about this and had a lot to say. Let's start with cut two. Here's Governor DeSantis. They all signed consent forms to go. And then the vendor that, that is doing this for Florida provided them with a packet that had a map of Martha's Vineyard. It had the numbers for different services on Martha's Vineyard. And then it had numbers for the overall agencies in Massachusetts that handle things involving immigration and refugees. So it was clearly voluntary. And all the other nonsense you're hearing um, is just not true. And, and why wouldn't they want to go, given where they were? They were in really, really bad shape. Uh, and they got to be cleaned up, everything treated well, and then put in a situation because, Sean, there are jobs available in Martha's Vineyard. There is lodging available in Martha's Vineyard. Had they lived up to their what they build themselves out as a sanctuary jurisdiction, they could have absorbed those people without a problem. But they didn't. They were gone within 48 hours. Now, let's just pause there for a second. Think about what you just heard. How many times in the last, what has it been, four or five days, have you heard that these people were tricked? to go to Martha's Vineyard. They were told they were going somewhere else. Then they showed up on this island. They had no idea where they were going. This is so exploitive. They were kidnapped. They were trafficked. We've heard this breathlessly from the media and Democratic politicians. And here's DeSantis, and he wouldn't be saying this if it were not true, because this is fact-checkable, and he's not an idiot. And he is revealing, I had not heard this level of detail before. DeSantis telling Hannity last night, that there were consent forms signed by every person who went. Not just like a, a verbal agreement or something like that. And as we noted, some people declined. They didn't go. Those who did go signed consent forms. They were said, here's the deal. Here's the paper. Do you agree? And they signed their name saying, yes, we agree. And then they were given a packet with a bunch of information about where they were going, which was Martha's Vineyard with a map with contact information for various services on Martha's Vineyard. This is not kidnapping. This is not trafficking. This is people voluntarily being sent somewhere where it works out well for them, because why wouldn't they want to be in Martha's Vineyard for as long as they can be? And it works out well for the person sending them there because 
In this case, he, Ron DeSantis, is raising the profile of an issue to a national firestorm on purpose for strategic reasons. So he goes on, DeSantis does, going after Martha's Vineyard and some of their hypocrisy, cut three. They said they didn't have housing. They said they couldn't accommodate. Like, let's just say that's true for a minute. Well, what does that mean for these poor towns in Texas? What does it mean for these other places across the country uh, that are seeing influx? What does it mean to these small towns that Biden has dumped so many people in? And so I think what we've been able to do is show that this border is a disaster. Biden has failed on this as much or more than on any other policy. And now people are talking about it. And we want solutions as Americans. We want to make sure that Trump's policies of remain in Mexico can be reinstituted so we can get control over what's going on down there. I mean, exactly right on every point. He was loaded for bear. He was ready for this. And here he is punching right back, and I think making an absolutely winning argument. Like, this is a TKO. The people who decide to engage him on this, maybe they're so unaware, self-unaware, that they think that they're you know winning or, or whatever. He is crushing them on this issue, while also elevating it to the point that we're all talking about it, which has been a goal of Republican policymakers because of the extent of the problem down there for months. They've been struggling to get any traction, and now this is working. And it's driving them crazy. As for the point about the stunt, which is what it's being labeled, and as I mentioned a moment ago, and I've said a few different times, I think that the word applies here, although not necessarily as a pejorative. But here's what DeSantis had to say about that in cut four. I think we should point out, you know, they accuse... The governors of Arizona, Texas, and me of political stunts in terms of dealing with illegal immigration. But the biggest stunt was Biden coming into office and reversing Trump's policies, not because Trump's policies weren't working. He reversed them because he wanted to virtue signal to his base and he wanted to show that he thought Donald Trump was bad. And that's why he reversed it. And he reversed it knowing what would end up happening. Uh, And so he has done he has pulled the biggest political stunt. That's right. Right again, Governor DeSantis. Now, one of those critics that he's firing back at is Gavin Newsom, as I said, the governor of California. But some of Newsom's detractors are pointing out an irony in all of this. Here's the FoxNews.com story. California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom is accusing Republican governors Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas of possible kidnapping and has called their transporting of illegal immigrants to progressive states, quote, morally reprehensible. This despite launching a program as San Francisco mayor that bust thousands of homeless people out of San Francisco and out of California. So Newsom has been slamming DeSantis, which is like one of his favorite pastimes. He wants to run against DeSantis in 2024. I think DeSantis would be thrilled with that matchup. Republicans should be. A national referendum? Do you want to be Florida or California? I don't think that ends well for the Democrats. But Newsom's saying, oh, these guys are kidnapping the migrants. Look at what they're doing. And Abbott has said that's absolute nonsense. We've followed the law. We know the law very well. We've complied with it. But an NPR reporter who interviewed Newsom in 2006 is pointing out, as are others, that as mayor of San Francisco, Newsom launched a program called Homeward Bound, which gave homeless people in San Francisco a one-way Greyhound bus ticket out of the city. And the reporter says that the mayor 
was the one who designed the program. What Newsom said at the time was, quote, remember the vast majority of people that are out there on the sidewalks are not from San Francisco originally, and they have some contacts somewhere. And those are the people beyond anything else that can help turn their lives around. So the deal was, hey, here's a free ticket out of San Francisco on a bus. We're giving this to you. You leave and agree not to come back, and we're going to help clean up our homeless problem. Now, is that morally reprehensible? Gavin Newsom, is that human trafficking? Did you kidnap these homeless people and throw them out of your very progressive, very compassionate city? No? I would love to hear him pushed on some of this stuff. I mean, good luck. It's probably not going to happen anytime soon. But, man, this story just keeps getting, in some ways, politically, better and better. The underlying story is horrifying. And that's the point. And now we're actually having a national conversation about it. And the people responsible for it are grappling with the consequences, in some cases, for the very first time. And their incoherent rage is not translating into anything that makes sense. So they are out there sort of firing off in every direction, trying to find something that might stick, and they look extremely foolish in the process. And the debate is happening. And I think the debate is being won decisively. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. And since we're talking about Governor DeSantis in Florida, how about this? Remember the whole big kerfuffle over the so-called Don't Say Gay bill, the parental rights in education bill? I had some criticisms of it and concerns about it, and I discussed them like an adult with the governor of Florida when we had him on this show, and it was a good exchange. One thing that I agreed with him on, really the centerpiece of the bill, was it's inappropriate to teach K-3 through students sexual orientation or gender identity stuff. They're just too young. That was the central piece of the bill. People went crazy over it, and surprise, it turned out to be popular with the people of Florida. The New York Times just put out a poll where they asked a very similar question. Do you support or oppose allowing public school teachers to provide classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity to kids in elementary school? 27% support. 70% oppose. I mean, that is an absolute blowout, 40-plus points. And the Democrats and the media somehow got themselves on the wrong side of that one. Amazing. This is what I was saying about DeSantis and the battles that he picks. Meanwhile, there was a study of MSNBC viewers. Two-thirds, 67% of MSNBC viewers believe that the word gay is now banned in all Florida public schools, which, of course, is complete misinformation laughably so, but it's what they believe because that's what they're being force-fed over at that network. The network that believes itself to be fighting misinformation, except, of course, when they're spreading it, which was the case here. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show upcoming. Former Acting Secretary of DHS Chad Wolf, our guest, in studio next. 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday, coming to you from the Northwoods of Wisconsin. Absolutely beautiful up here. Thank you so much for listening, wherever you are. Around the clock on our website, on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Lots of options there if you cannot listen live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. A reminder, that website, GuyBensonShow.com, or for the podcast, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter, and Instagram. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is all over Wisconsin now and many other states. To find out where it's sold near you, visit thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. That's thelongdrink.com. With us now from our D.C. studio is Chad Wolf, former acting secretary of DHS and AFPI's chairman for the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration, and Mr. Secretary, good to have you back here. Well, thanks for having me. I would like to get your reaction to the breaking news from yesterday afternoon, evening, that the Border Patrol and the U.S. government has again put out the latest numbers at the border, this time for August. And for the first time, migrant encounters at the southern border have surpassed 2 million in a single year. And in August alone, Again, another month over 200,000, 203,598 encounters, and we know that there were tens of thousands of known gotaways as well. So the total fiscal year 22 is now over 2.1 million, still a month left to go in that fiscal year. Just put those numbers, if you would, into perspective. Well, I would say that the nightmare continues, a nightmare that that is – the Biden administration's border policy continues, and unfortunately, Americans are, are bearing the brunt of it. So we have another another month of over 200,000. This is the eighth month within the Biden administration that they've been over 200,000 illegal apprehensions along that border. There, are, Outside of the Biden administration, you can't find another month where you've been over 200,000, and they have eight of them. They have eight of them. I think it just shows you that their strategy that they continue to say that they are implementing – is a failed and broken strategy, and it's failing the American public, and they need to change course. And I think when you talk about apprehensions, but you also talk about the number of folks that have been released into the country, right? It's mm-hmm. been over 1.3 million have been released into the country. That's the population of Dallas, Texas, right? And so this stuff starts to add up over time, right? Those are just the, the encounters and the apprehensions. If you look at the known and suspected terrorists that they are now apprehending, it's uh, 78 in this fiscal year alone. That's 12 in the month of August alone. You have to go back uh, the previous four fiscal years and triple it to even get close to that number. And so I think what this is telling the American people is that the Biden administration has no idea what they're doing along that border. They are um, it's so broken. They're so in the weeds. There's nothing that they can do. There's nothing that they're willing to do, I should say, that's going to get them out of this mess. And that's why we continue to see these numbers be astronomically high month after month after month. 
Yeah, this is happening for a reason. They are causing these numbers to be this bad. It's not an unhappy coincidence that all of a sudden they take over with their policies, their rhetoric, and people start flooding into the country at record levels. This is happening on purpose, as a matter of fact. And I think that there's at least some intentionality behind it because they will not change course despite the catastrophe that they have unleashed. I want to come back to the terrorism numbers in just a moment. But before we do that, let's just pause. Some of the stats you just rattled off are extraordinary, and we shouldn't just blow past them. You said of the people that have been apprehended, caught, and processed, you said, what, over a million of them have been released into the United States, correct? This is within the last fiscal year or under Biden's watch? So that's under Biden's watch. That's as of June where they were reporting numbers. So we've gone through July and now we've gone through August. So the 1.3 is definitely higher. We just don't know where it's at because they're not providing that data anymore. So it's definitely north of 1.3 million that have been released into the United States. And that's, again, something that our government, our policies have actively done. I would say it's probably safe to guess at least that we're well past one and a half million on that number alone. And then we're also getting close to one million known gotaways. So these are people, just to reframe this, and I know folks who listen frequently know that we talk about this, but the definition for maybe new listeners or you've missed this debate, known gotaways are people who are seen or captured on camera or sensors or something like that. They are detected as they enter the United States illegally, but they are not apprehended. They are not caught. There's a lack of manpower or what have you, resources to go get these people, but they are counted as known gotaways anyway. Then there's another category of unknown gotaways. We have no idea how many people are able to sneak into the country totally undetected but come here uh, unlawfully anyway. Just sticking and just talking about the known gotaways, a verifiable number, that's close to a million. So, Chad, if you just add these numbers up, basic arithmetic, we're talking about two and a half million people who have entered the country illegally who are here now under this president. I mean, that is just a breathtaking number in less than two years of this administration. Well, I think it's a, you know, if you look at some of the numbers, I'd say it's a little north than that, right? So the number of illegal apprehensions in the first year of the Biden presidency were about 1.7. Uh, now we're at 2.1. That's going to be a little north of, of 2.1 come at the end of September of this fiscal year. You add those two numbers together and then the gotaways, and you're getting close to about 5 million people uh, the first two years of this of this presidency, both apprehensions and gotaways. Yep. Now, they're not all here in the United States. Right. Uh, some, a very small portion have been removed under Title 42, but not a lot. But that just shows you this is a broken strategy. But what, what confuses me and I think confuses a lot of Americans – is that they keep doubling down. There is no new enforcement measures. There's nothing that the administration is announcing to try to stop the crisis on this border. Instead, what they continue to do is to treat it like a capacity issue, and they're just simply trying to process more and more and more of these individuals into the country. And the only time that they care about it, the only time that they'll talk about it, is if Border Patrol horseback agents are, quote, unquote, whipping migrants, right? or the migrants are showing up in cities and localities that have not seen migrants before, now local officials are concerned about it. And I think that should really just, it's breathtaking that the commander-in-chief or the vice president will not address the American people about this crisis and lay out a strategy to fix it. They have just been absent from this entire crisis, and it's, it's just amazing. 
Yeah, uh, $2 million plus encounters in this fiscal year alone with another month to go, yet another month of 200,000-plus. Some number of millions of people who entered the country illegally who are still here and have been allowed or have made it for themselves the ability to stay because they weren't caught uh, or they were you know, permitted to stay having been caught and then released by the Biden administration. Uh, that number at least two and a half million in all likelihood, maybe higher, as the secretary just said. And let's focus in on something that you just referenced, which was this push by some Republican governors to send a fraction of the border crisis to sanctuary jurisdictions, be it D.C., be it New York, be it Chicago, and of course, very famously in the last week or so, Martha's Vineyard as well, uh, you know, up in the islands in, in Massachusetts. What do you make of this strategy or this tactic by Republican governors? Um, you know, some people are taking exception to it. I think there's a really ludicrous claim that this is human trafficking and could be illegal. I think that's nonsense. But whether it's, you know, a perfect uh, political move or not, whether it is, you know, the best possible policy to be pursuing, it is certainly at the very least forcing a conversation about this massive sort of gaping problem that we have at our southern border that a lot of people, and you know this, have been bending over backwards to ignore. They don't want to talk about it. They've avoided talking about it to the greatest extent possible to sort of look the other way, see no harm, see no evil. I think that includes many in the media. It certainly includes almost all of the Democratic Party and the Biden administration. They just, you know, repeat the rote talking point that the border is secure, which is nonsense. You know, whether you love or not this decision by these Republican governors, all of a sudden this is a top of mind conversation in the country where people are debating important issues, at least on that front, I would imagine you would see that as a win. Well, I do. It certainly elevated the discussion that we've need to we we should be having for months and months now and and right so the the mayor of dc has declared a state of emergency because she has received several hundred maybe up to a thousand migrants in her city so if it's not if we're not in a crisis right the biden administration will tell you and the border is secure why is the why is the mayor of dc declaring a state of emergency it, you can't have it both ways they need to start being honest with the american people and i think you have governor abbott and desantis and others that in my mind, this is not a political issue. This is reality. And I don't think, you know, when you when you sit in Martha's Vineyard or New York, like you, you don't understand the reality on the border. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that South Texas for 18 months now is receiving about 4,000 individuals a day. That's not a week or a month. That is a day. And their capacity of shelters, the ability to take care of these people are so overwhelmed that – these governors have no other alternative. They have been begging the Biden administration to actually enforce the law, to remove these individuals. The Biden administration has refused. This is reality for these for these governors. They have to take action. When you have hundreds of folks, uh, migrants that are wandering around the streets of El Paso, Brownsville, McAllen, and others because there's no more shelter capacity, there's no more buses, there's no more flights out of the area because they have been booked for weeks. This is reality. So I get pretty fired up when people say, oh, it's a political stunt. It's not a political stunt. It, it's action we've never taken before because we've never seen the federal government not do its job and not enforce the border. Um, and so we are in unprecedented times. But these are the governors are reacting to reality. And the reality is that no one is paying attention and no one cares. And it's certainly not the president and the vice president 
who refuse to talk about this crisis. And so they are forced to take certain actions. And that action, as you said, Guy, is it's causing a discussion at the federal level about what what in the world is going on. Yeah. And, and, I know and the more seems, focus on it, the better. Yeah, it seems like some of the people who are reacting, especially in the press, think that this is a bad look and reflects poorly on the Republican governors. And I think they're miscalculating because this comes back to the fundamental underlying problem that has been raging for the entire Biden administration. And I think Republicans are absolutely delighted to have that conversation. They're like, finally, finally, we can talk about it. Sure, let's debate my move and busing some people or flying some people to various places. But it comes back to the crisis here, which you guys have not whispered a single syllable about, basically, for this entire time. And what do you think, what goes through your head, Mr. Secretary, when you see the reaction from blue state mayors or rather blue city mayors, blue state officials who very proudly tout their sanctuary status? And then when they are basically forced to provide some of that sanctuary and a little bit of relief, just a little fractional relief from what's happening at the border, they are just having absolute conniption fits. And then there's like a huge meltdown over 48 people showing up. In Martha's Vineyard, you mentioned 4,000 a day in Texas. This was 48 people one time, and they were thrown off the island within 48 hours. It's just sort of amazing to watch the people respond to this problem that they are at least indulging or supporting through their you know, political alignment and their you know, favoring of the Biden administration and their support for these types of policies. It just kind of seems like it's a not-in-my-backyard sort of problem for them, and they're not really very good at handling the PR when the consequences of what they support uh, are visited upon them just a little bit. But you're absolutely correct. Look, at, at the end of the day, it boils down to this, right? The, the left and a lot of these folks that are complaining right now have been absolutely silent, have been absolutely silent month after month after month of this crisis, have been silent when you have over 700 deaths uh, in the river and in the desert this fiscal year. So we're not even talking about the 50, unfortunately, that died in the back of a tractor-trailer truck in San Antonio a couple of months ago. Over 700 because of the inhumane policy of this administration. They don't talk about that. You won't see anyone issuing a press release or anything else. The only time they get upset is when it's in their backyard. The only time they get upset is when That's they right. have to encounter it and they actually have to take action about it. And guess what? I would say welcome to the fight. That's what the people of South Texas and Arizona and California and others have been doing for 18 months. For 18 months, they have been in a crisis that this administration has created and caused and refuses to solve. Yep. And these and, other and, people and, have and just been sitting there it. and just sort of Great. watching from afar – from a very safe distance and doing nothing about it as if it doesn't exist. Our guest here on The Guy Benson Show is Chad Wolf. He's the former acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. We're talking about the border crisis, new numbers out just yesterday with major implications. And just a few minutes ago, Chad mentioned briefly these terrorists or suspected terrorists that were caught in the month of August, a dozen of them at the southern border that we know of. I want to drill down on that a little bit as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on this Tuesday. Our guest, Chad Wolf, former acting secretary at DHS 
And Chad, last question, because you mentioned it earlier and I wanted to get to it. Those 12 arrests, known arrests of individuals on the FBI terror watch list just in August alone, bringing the total for the year from that list encountered at the border up to 78, uh, triple the previous five years combined, as you pointed out. I'm not sitting here and saying that the primary problem at the border is crime or criminals or terrorists. Of course, that is a component of the broader problem. And what makes me shudder about the statistic that I just read that you had talked about a little while ago is if we caught 12 suspected terrorists that we know of among the encounters, how many of those types of folks are within the category of gotaways who enter the country undetected and they're here now? I think that is a a genuine worry people have. Yeah, I think that's right, because what we know is that the vast majority of folks that are being picked up by Border Patrol are folks that are turning themselves in, and we know that we are catching just a small percentage. And, wh- and how do we know that? Because we know that most of Border Patrol agents are back in their facilities processing these hundreds of thousands of migrants. They're not actually on the border. So these 12 in the month of August are just the ones that I, I would say that are almost dumb enough to get caught by Border Patrol, the very few Border Patrol agents that we have out there. And so you're exactly right. Those gotaways in the month of August and, and every other month, how many known and suspected terrorists are in there, what we call KSTs? The answer is is not zero. I don't know what the answer is, and DHS doesn't know what the answer is, and that's the issue. And that's that's the national security threat. You cannot you cannot dismiss this, and you can't push it away to say, well, there's no really real security issues with this. Of course there is. Mm-hmm. And this number, 12, is just a small snapshot of what they encountered in the month of August, and it should concern a lot of people. Why are more? Why are we apprehending more and more known and suspected terrorists with fewer and fewer Border Patrol agents? It's not that they got better equipment or they're better at their job all of a sudden. It's because more and more of them are showing up in yeah, numbers coming. that we have never seen. Because they're incentivized to do so by this giant unfolding mess that continues to play out every single day at the southern border, which is why we continue to talk about it here on the show. Chad Wolf, our guest, former acting secretary of DHS and now AFPI's chairman for the Center on Homeland Security and Immigration. Mr. Secretary, as always, thanks for dropping by. That's great to be on. Thank you. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Chugging along together here on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the program today, we caught up with U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, chairman of the NRSC. Are things starting to look a little bit brighter for the Republicans and their chances of winning back the Senate? We asked him about that and more. Here's part of that discussion with Senator Scott. We had Adam Laxalt on the show yesterday. We had Herschel Walker on the show last week. We've got Blake Masters lined up uh, in a couple days. I think it might even be tomorrow. We've got some of these really important races covered here. We've had Senator Johnson. I'm actually doing the show from Wisconsin today. Uh, Those four races, Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Nevada seem to be kind of right smack in the middle of all of this. How are you feeling about each of those races and some of those dynamics based on what you're seeing, what you're hearing, maybe some of the internal numbers that you're seeing? I'm just curious. So let's take Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson is a hardworking senator. He's a great campaigner. He's running against a Marxist. Um, If you look at his races in 10 and 16, never ahead in any polls. Uh, Just last week, 
Uh, the Democrat-leading poll, Marquette, has him up one. And our internal polls have um, Senator Johnson up four. So I think he's going to have a nice win. He's raising his money. Again, everybody, you know, help, help all of our candidates, but he's running a great race. Herschel Walker, here's what's happened down there. Uh, Herschel, if you look at the public polls, Herschel's up three. Uh, here's why. Herschel is a good guy. People like him. He cares about people. He listens. Raphael Warnick is a Marxist, and he is lying about his record. He ran as a middle-of-the-road guy back in 2020. Uh, he had a nice ad with a little dog that he actually doesn't even own. Uh, he, we, so what we've done is we've defined him. And how have we defined him? We've shown that he's not a middle-of-the-road guy. He's Chuck Schumer lookalike. He votes whatever Chuck Schumer tells him how to vote. We've taken his favorable numbers, not because we don't like the guy, but we should show how he's voted down 28 points uh, since the election in 2020. So we've defined him early. Herschel's run a good race. He's going to win. Brian Kemp uh, is our is the Republican governor, and he's running a great race. And those two together are both going to win uh, in November. Okay. I mean, I think that certainly Johnson and Walker have some momentum in those Senate races. Uh, Laxalt seems to be a very strong candidate in Nevada. His opponent is uh, really struggling to gain any sort of traction at all out there. But it's always a close state. I know Republicans have done a lot of hard work in terms of closing the registration gap, but it's still, you know, relatively blue place. But talking to him yesterday, I mean, he sounded pretty bullish about it. I would imagine you probably agree. Adam Laxalt is going to win, and here's why. Adam is a good candidate. Um, he served in Iraq, two-term state attorney general, very successful at that. He's, he's running against a person that most people in Nevada don't have any perception about. We've been dis- defining the, his Democrat opponent uh, since last year. Um, as you also know that we, we have been – the Hispanic vote has been moved in our direction. I've won the Hispanic vote in my two governor's races and my Senate race. Hispanics are with us because they don't like what Joe Biden and the Democrats are doing. It's got it's over 20 percent of the vote is Hispanic. I think Adam Laxalt is going to do really well with Hispanic voters, and that's going to be the game changer. If you look at the polls, he's flacked up a little bit, uh, and he's running a good race. Uh, the Democrat isn't, and that's why we're going to win there. What about Arizona? I know people are saying it could be winnable. Uh, Blake Masters has not led in any of the polling that I've seen yet. Mark Kelly's the incumbent. Uh, He's just, you know, a a Biden-Schumer rubber stamp, but he's got a huge amount of money. He's been spending a ton of it. They're attacking Blake Masters. He's a first-time candidate uh, for office of any sort. So, you know, it seems like maybe a little bit more of an uphill battle out in Arizona, but with the, the right type of turnout, and, you know, if, if it's a red sort of evening, it seems like that one could be within grasp. Is that one that you would say, you know, is is winnable still? Absolutely. We're investing in each of these states. Um, first off, Blake is a successful tech entrepreneur. Uh, it is, it's going to be a Republican year. Uh, Mark Kelly ran in, in uh, 2020 as a moderate. Um, he's voted against border security, not very popular there. He's voted against stimulus checks uh, to, to felons, not popular in Arizona. My full interview with Rick Scott, U.S. Senator from Florida, NRSC chairman, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, also on that free podcast, on demand, no charge, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. years ago there was a very popular podcast. 
about a murder conviction and a murder of a young woman in Maryland. The man convicted of her murder, her boyfriend, is no longer in prison as of yesterday. A huge development that we will talk about when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. And if you are listening on the broadcast, our bumper song here is the theme song for a podcast called Serial that got so much attention. It was back in 2014. I binge listened to the whole thing. It had a lot of buzz. It was about the murder of a young woman in Maryland, a high school student who was found dead. Her name was Hay Lee. And she was killed in 1999. So years later, a decade and a half later, this podcast started to look into the murder and the murder conviction of her boyfriend, Adnan Syed, who'd been in prison at that point for years while maintaining his innocence. And the host of the podcast, Sarah Koenig, really did a deep dive. It was one of these true crime podcasts, and she went sort of through the entire murder. She retraced a lot of the steps. She tested some of the theories of the case and some of the accusations from prosecutors. There were interviews, like prison interviews, with Adnan Syed, the convicted killer in the case, and many other people who were related to the case in some way. And it was riveting stuff. I just blew right through it. And a lot of people were chattering about it at the time. People had their various theories. Was he actually innocent? Was he guilty of her murder? Was he maybe aware of certain things that he wasn't letting on, but maybe not directly responsible for the killing? Everyone had their theory. If you listen to Serial back in 2014, uh, I was certainly among them. There was an HBO documentary made about it uh, a couple years back. So this has been kind of percolating, and occasionally you'll see a headline here or there about some appeal or some new allegation related to the case just because of the national attention that this whole situation had garnered. Well, there was a big development yesterday where prosecutors in Maryland asked a judge to vacate the judgment against Syed, who was now at this point, what, convicted decades ago. He's been in prison for years for this murder that he maintains he did not commit. So a judge in the state granted the prosecution's request yesterday afternoon And Syed was released, and it's unclear what the next step is going to be. But outside the courthouse, there are people who have been supporters of his for a very long time. They had gathered to witness this decision. And as he walked out, he was greeted with cheers from some of his fans, if you can call it that, or supporters. Here's what it sounded like. So, obviously, there are other people who believe that he's guilty and that the conviction was correct, and it's disturbing to think that a convicted murderer is now free again. So I have kind of a lukewarm take on this, my overall theory, having listened to the whole podcast. And I guess there's a new episode. They dropped a new episode yesterday, the first one in years, because Sarah Koenig was at the courthouse and bringing these developments to the fore in this relatively short new episode that they sort of scrambled to produce. It's, I believe, less than 20 minutes long. I haven't heard it yet. I will listen for sure. Christine was also someone.
who listened to Serial back in the day. This was before she and I had ever met. We were both off in our own little worlds listening to Serial. And, Christine, before I give my take on what I sort of feel about the case, I honestly have no idea where you come down. Are you a free Syed person? Are you a he's guilty? What's your thought on this? Okay, so, Guy, I was definitely a free Adnan from the very, very beginning. I listened to Serial. I probably listened to the entire 12 episodes more than once over the years because I found it so compelling. It was probably one of the first podcasts that I ever really listened to. It's really what introduced me to podcasting. And now he is home, and they said that um, – the prosecutors have 30 days to decide if they're going to bring up charges again or if they're going to just drop this altogether. And I have a feeling my gut is saying they're going to drop this. And there are two people out there that um, they also have on their list that are possible suspects. And I think we're going to see this case move into a completely different direction. All right. Well, FoxNews.com explaining this. The DA's office revealed last Wednesday that a year-long review of the case uncovered new evidence. That was according to the Wall Street Journal. Quote, the state no longer has confidence in the integrity of the conviction, said Baltimore's state's attorney, Marilyn Mosby. And then if you read down into some of the legal documents in this filing in the Baltimore City Circuit Court, the new information dealt with, as you said, two other potential suspects and the prosecutors said this, quote, to be clear, the state is not asserting at this time that the defendant is innocent. However, for all the reasons set forth below in this document, the state no longer has confidence in the integrity of the conviction. So they're not saying he didn't do it, but they aren't really sure about the conviction anymore. This is, what, 20 years later. You're obviously sounding happy that he's now out. Oh, thrilled. The, yeah, the way that I look at this is – and. Bear in mind, this was years ago, right? So this was yeah. ninety-nine, eight, eight years ago. Well, the the podcast. Oh, oh, the podcast oh, yes. was twenty fourteen. So that was eight years ago, and at the time, and I'm just sort of racking my own brain and memory. A lot of the details are a little bit shaky, uh, but part of the reason that we're talking about this is because, at least at the time, it became the most downloaded podcast ever. There was so much interest in this story, and my lukewarm take that I mentioned a moment ago is that I believe that there's a greater chance than not that Adnan Syed at least had some knowledge of or involvement in the killing in some way. I think that he's not being fully honest. There is a fair amount of circumstantial evidence that is questionable about his behavior and certain other things and holes in the story. Like I remember he would call her and contact her constantly, and then the day that she disappeared, he just stopped contacting her completely, or shortly thereafter, which seems suspicious. There were a number of different things. Also, one of his friends, a guy I believe named Jay, knew where the body was in a car, which was like one of the significant spoilers in this podcast, but it's years old now, so I think, you know, it's sort of the statute of limitation has passed, and that was a very significant detail, I think, that just led me to believe that, Adnan Syed was not necessarily innocent in all of this, but I was also not completely convinced of that. I think there was a significant possibility that he had nothing to do with it. And from a legal perspective, 
there were so many horrible mistakes made in court. His lawyer seemed awful. And I really felt like they did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty of murder. So, you know, that's not really a satisfying conclusion that I reached. Like, I'm not all in on he's innocent, free the guy or whatever. But, I mean, you don't have to be convinced of someone's innocence to say that they shouldn't have been convicted and shouldn't be sitting in prison. The burden there has to be on the state, and I don't think that they met it. So for that reason, I'm glad that he's out, but also not totally sure that he's an innocent man, which is kind of a weird feeling to have. I 100% disagree with you. So the the witness that you're talking about, the person that said that that, that they saw Hay's body, Jay Child, he, if, if you've watched the documentary on HBO, he was up against a lot of drug charges. And I personally believe, because we saw this in the Ryan Ferguson case, if you remember, I think that the prosecutors, I think the detectives fed him information to kind of just close this case up. He needed to make sure that he wasn't going to go to prison. They needed to convict somebody of a missing woman, you know, 18-year-old. And we, like I said, we saw the same thing. No, happen no, to but Ryan. that, but that's the key, though. She was missing. No one knew where her body was, except he did. It was in the trunk of a car, and he knew where the car was. Like N- they didn't know where she was until he told them. No, no, so no, he, no, that's not. No, that's not true. Somebody else found the body. Remember, and then he said that. Oh no, he yeah, knew. That's yeah, where she we was, put it. Yeah, it was. He knew where the car was. That not right. where the body was. The body was in a park. Right. That was my mistake. They found her in a park. Some guy was like in that park and, and run it, ran across the dead body, but she was, I guess, held and transported in a car. The car was missing, yep. and they couldn't find the car, which is a crucial piece of evidence, and Jay knew where the car was. That I was the, the detail, and that was significant to me. The point is, though, I think where we actually agree is that in terms of the important burden of proof to convict someone of a crime, especially as serious as murder, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt and the prosecutors just, in my view, and it sounds like yours too, just did not do that. And that ultimately is the legal rub here. Uh, what I, I agree with you on that. And also, I just want to say it is so scary, and we've seen this before, and so sad that it took this many years to try to clean this up, to try to get him free. And like Marilyn Mosby said, they don't even think that he's innocent just yet, but we'll probably see in the next month or two that they won't, they won't press any more charges on him. No, and they're I mean, going I to guess be we'll, at the other we'll two. see, right? They'll have to make that decision here in the upcoming days. And I guess one perspective is if Adnan Syed was somehow involved, right? One theory would be that he directly killed her himself and he's a murderer and he's been convicted. He's been sitting in prison for two decades That's option one. Option two is he hasn't been fully forthcoming. Maybe he was an accessory or an accessory after the fact or had some sort of involvement. Well, he's been in prison, as I said, for 20 years or so. So he's definitely paid a debt for that if he's guilty of that. And if he had nothing to do with this, if he was totally innocent of this completely, he's been sitting behind bars unjustly for really – his entire adult life to this point. Uh, And that is such a grave injustice if that's the case. And so, you know, you kind of pick which door you believe. I tweeted about it and I had a bunch of people flooding into my replies and DMs with all sorts of different theories. People were like, no, he's definitely guilty. They're letting him walk. This is an outrage. And other people saying, 
This is a long time coming, all of it. I just think it's very interesting. I would just say if you've never heard of Serial or it was something that you like got wind of back in 2014 but never got around to it, I would listen to it. I think it's very compelling. I think it's engrossing. I just sat in silence in my car and even in my house listening hour after hour to this, and now this big bombshell update years later, you know, way after the conviction and years after the podcast became a hit with Adnan Syed walking free, sort of, for now, with future decisions on whether to seek a new trial or to drop the charges, uh, that all remaining to be seen and to be announced here in the coming days and weeks. And when there's an update, we'll bring it to you. And if you haven't listened to the Serial Podcast, obviously keep listening to the Guy Benson Show podcast every day. That's crucial. But if you have some extra free time, uh, I think it's worth your while. And with that, we've got to run. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson from Wisconsin today. I'll be in Illinois tomorrow doing the show. Thanks for being here. We'll talk to you then, and have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.